Amen. Good morning, church. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Grant Glover, and I am the Young Adults Minister here at PCBC. I'm primarily in charge of running the new Young Adults Ministry we launched this fall called Off the Clock. And we meet at the, at the Angelica Movie Theater at 7.15 p.m. every Tuesday night. So if you're a young adult, ages 18 to 29, we'd love to see you there. And while I normally get to speak uh, at Tuesday nights, I'm excited to be here in the, this morning in the Great Hall with you all. And before we jump into our sermon, I'm going to read from the passage of Scripture we'll be in this morning. We're in Ephesians 2, 11 to 22, so if you have a Bible, go ahead and open up and turn there. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22. So I'll go ahead and start us off and read it for us, and then we'll get started. Ephesians 2, 11. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to you who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This is God's word. So you saw that our sermon title for today is Better Together. We're talking about unity. And you may have seen that word unity there and cringed just a little bit on the inside because it seems like we're talking about that a lot right now. Because like as we all know, there are lots of divisions going on kind of the modern day in our society. And it could be big things or it could be little things like is Star Wars Episode Eight good or not? And the objective answer is it's terrible. We all know that. Or are you a Spotify subscriber or an Apple Music subscriber? Hopefully you're normal and you have a Spotify. If not, let us help you. And Or it could be what news channel do you like? What do you subscribe to? There are all sorts of little things and big things that we're divided over. And what we're doing a lot now is we're hearing a lot of churches talk about unity and preach on unity and how we can be united, but a lot of times they could be kind of in the abstract and not like real. Like what does it actually look like for a church in North Dallas to be unified? What does unity look like here at PCBC or here at a church that you either love or do not love? What does the Bible actually require from us to be unified? That's a question we will answer and we will find it in Ephesians 2, 11 to 22. And in it, we will see three things how we are united, what it looks like, and why we can do it. How, what, why. So our first point then will be how we are united. What is the actual nature of this unity? 
And you'll see in the first few verses here in this passage that Paul is describing this hostility that exists between Jews and Gentiles. And if you're not familiar, Gentiles would be any person back then who was not Jewish. So it's the Jews versus everybody else. The circumcised versus the uncircumcised. Those following Yahweh in the Old Testament and those living a pagan lifestyle. And these two groups of people hated each other. Why? Well, Paul gives a little hint in verse 15 and he, when he says that Jesus abolished the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. And what he's not saying is that Jesus abolished the law. What he's talking about, the key phrase there is that word in ordinances. And what that cues us in on is he's talking about the human tradition and rules around the law. Here's what happened. Back in the Old Testament, when God gave the law to Israel, it was good. It was meant to promote human flourishing and it was meant for the Jews to bring in the nations into God's covenant people and to reveal God's character to the rest of the world. But over time, what happens is that the Jewish people become more and more self-righteous, more and more works-based, and they begin to add all these little ticky-tacky rules onto the law that they're supposed to follow. And in Jesus' day, this was called the halakha. It was like this, that word means fence, and it's like the fence around the law meant to guard it. So for example, the Old Testament says, rest on the Sabbath day. And their rule was, that means you cannot walk any more than 30 feet from your house. And some Jews would actually tie a rope around their waist that was like pinned to part of their house to where they wouldn't break that law. And so this is what Jesus comes at the Pharisees for all the time, is that they're all trying to follow these legalistic rules, adding all this stuff around the law that God did not do. And it caused them to have a sense of superiority. You see, what these laws did, it, broke, it put up a dividing wall of hostility between them and Gentiles because they had this whole culture, this tradition, this religion that said they are superior and Gentiles are inferior. They don't follow it. And they called them Gentile dogs. And so the Gentiles, in turn, hated the Jews for this. And so this was the nature of the conflict, this dividing wall, these man-made traditions. And what's interesting is this can seem like an obsolete old debate, but we do kind of similar things even today. You know, we take good things, like God gave Israel the law and then something bad came out of it, and we get good things too and we use it to divide others as well. For example, if we grew up with a certain education, a certain sense of morality, a certain way of doing church or a certain church we grew up in, we take good things and be like, I get it, the rest of these people do not. I would rather not have to deal with them, they don't get it, I do. And so we do the same thing. And the question is, how does this hostility get, get taken down? Well, look at verse 17, where it says that Jesus had to come and preach peace to those who were far off and peace to those who were near. Far off means Gentiles, near means Jews. So what it's saying is actually both groups of people did not have it right, both were in need of God's grace, and God had to come and redeem the Gentiles from their sinful pagan lifestyle and he had to come to redeem Jews for their self-righteousness, for thinking they were superior, which also turned out to be a sinful lifestyle. And this truth then shows how we are united. Everyone is undeserving of grace, yet it is freely given. This is the actual nature of our unity, and the gospel cuts across both culture and religion and shows how real unity could be achieved. Because you see, culture tells you, look, look inside yourself, find out what you like to do, who you wanna be, and strive after that. Whatever you want in life, whether it's fame, wealth, power,
power, success, whatever that is, go after that and whoever is intolerant of what you want, cut them out. Don't have anything to do with them. Be you, do you. Religion, on the other hand, says you need to become morally superior. You need to reform your morals. You need to become a better person. And when you do, you need to get everybody else to conform to your standards. And when someone else is not being as moral as you are, you look down on them. But the gospel goes for neither of those options. What it says is everybody in this room is undeserving of God's grace. Yet God gives grace freely. Forgiveness is free for everybody and everyone needs it. So there is no sense of superiority or inferiority. That no longer exists. And if that's true, then that means there can be real unity in this place, in this church, based on our identity, that that's it. Undeserving, yet freely given. So here's what it's like. This is about to be my most absurd sermon illustration ever. Does anyone in here listen to the ticket? Where are my P1s at? Yeah, there they are. So if you don't know, the ticket is a sports and comedy radio station here in Dallas. And there's this morning show called The Musers, which is like one of my favorite things to listen to. It's between the hours of six and 10 every day. And the hosts on the show have this great bit where when one of them leaves and they have a sick leave for a couple days and then come back, they'll ask them if they battled with the great equalizer. If you're a P1, you already know what this is. But if you're not, the great equalizer, what they would say is that it's whenever you have a certain stomach bug, I'll put this lightly, a certain stomach bug that rushes upon you and sends you to the bathroom, perhaps for an extended period of time. And they call it the great equalizer because in their words, they say, at the moment you're battling it, the highest king in the world, the most powerful man, is brought down to the same level as the lowest commoner. They are equal, the great equalizer. And it's actually pretty brilliant and it's true. And in a very unrelated way, the gospel is also the great equalizer. <laughs> I told you it was absurd. Look, what the gospel says is every, it brings everyone on the same level. There is no superior or inferior anymore. Everyone is brought on the same level playing field because of what God has done and what he declares about us. And if that's true, then that will change the way that this, the people in this room view each other because what we tend to fall into a lot of us in the room have fallen into the common Western mindset that your life is about, again, what you do, what you want. And what happens is people either become products for you to consume or little dots on your network to add, to build up whatever you want in life. People either valuable or invaluable based on what they can bring you. And so certain people then are inferior. The inconvenient people in your life are not helping your cause, so they are pushed to the side. And so that is what actually cannot happen. And if the great equalizer is true, then there can't be dividing walls. And yet we throw some up. So for example, do you judge people or push people aside based on simply their title at work? Do you give certain people with certain titles more privilege than others? Do you judge people, do you push people aside because of their morals, how they live compared to how you do? Do you push people aside based on their social standing, how many functions they attend, and how much social value they can add to your network? Do you judge people based on their political leanings, casting out all those who disagree with you and pushing them to the side, throwing up a wall? 
Or do you throw up a wall between people who don't do church and don't want church to look like the way you want it to? If the great equalizer is true, we can have disagreements, but we can all recognize that there is no pecking order anymore. The gospel has brought us all on the same level playing field and we are all just grateful to be here by the grace of God and we don't deserve it. That is the nature of our unity. That's why the church can be united. Now, if that's true, if the nature of this unity is this common identity we all have with the great equalizer, then the question is, how does this actually get lived out? What does this unity look like? Because like I said, I want this to be real and tangible. What does this actually look like here? And that'll be our second point. What does it look like? So after Paul explains how the Jews and Gentiles have been brought together via the great equalizer, he then goes on to talk about where they are now. And he says in verse 19, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens. Now those two words right there, strangers and aliens, were words used to describe people who were not of full Roman citizenship. They had less rights and privileges than the typical Roman citizen in Roman territory. And he's saying, okay, you're no longer that. Here's what you are now. Here's what's happened. Look at the threefold intensifying imagery over the next few verses. Verse 19, they're now fellow citizens with the saints. He also says, not only are they fellow citizens with the saints, but they are members of the same household, their family. And not only that, in verses 20 and 21, he says they are like stones being built together in the same building. Do you see what I mean? He's saying Jews and Gentiles, they were strangers and aliens, but now because of the great equalizer, they've been brought together as fellow countrymen. And not just countrymen, but family members. And not just family members, but like stones cemented together in the same building. So that means Christian community, Christian unity is real. It's intense. It's not just a concept. It's not just a goal to strive for. It is a reality that has already happened. And the question is, what does this reality look like? And this morning, I wanna to present to you a way of understanding Christian community that I think the church has lost sight of a little bit. This is what it looks like. This is what unity looks like. Christian community is intimate friendship. Friendship, that's what we're gonna talk about. Because friendship, for whatever reason, is a bit of a lost art in the modern church. And I'm talking mostly to PCBC members this morning, but if you are a guest and would like to consider joining this community, we'll hopefully outline what friendship's supposed to look like here. And if you're a non-believer, there will be some takeaways for you as well. Now, talking about friendship, what's interesting is that when you look at modern society, we are actually surprisingly, unbelievably lonely compared to previous generations. There was a study done earlier this year in May which said that Americans are more lonely than they were 30 years ago. And let's pause right there and say that's interesting because 30 years ago, social media did not exist. Digital connections, the amount of connections we had was a lot lower back then. And yet, in 1990, 3% of Americans said they had zero close friends. And that number has quadrupled to 12% as of May 2021. We statistically have less friends than we did 30 years ago. And surprisingly, I actually think, you know, there are a million reasons why this is the case. But I think social media actually plays a huge role in that. Because what social media has done is that it's caused us to be very cognizant of our brand. 
of our image. Because on social media, we present the good parts of our lives. We want our lives to look desirable. We want people to think we have it together. And so what that means then is that we are always aware and always concerned about what people's, how people view us. And so we throw up a facade, a persona. We guard what's really going on because we're afraid if people knew what was really going on, they wouldn't want to know us. But then what happens then is when you have a bunch of personas interacting with each other, you have no friends. You have shallow fake friendships. And what's concerning is this has not only happened in society as a whole, but now it's permeated its way into church culture too. Because let's be honest, especially here in Dallas, we are unbelievably guarded. Like when we come here, we dress a certain way, we talk a certain way, we act a certain way, throw up a facade because we don't want people to think that we don't have it all together, even though we all know we don't. And so what this means is people don't really know what's really going on in our lives. All they see is our networking mode that we come to church with. Like when's the last time you had a deep, powerful, long conversation with somebody in church? that like change the trajectory of your life. A lot of times we just come and fake it. Now you may be sitting there wondering, well Grant, why bother with this, placing this high priority on friendship? Why should I do that? I have plenty of relationships, I'm fine. Well, I'll tell you why, and it's because when you look into it, friendship is at the very core of God's being. Verse 18, it says, through him being Christ, Through him, through Christ, we have access in one spirit to the Father. So Paul here in verse 18 is talking about the Trinity, right? This idea that we exist in relationship with God who is not one person but three. One God, three persons. And this idea, this doctrine seems impractical, abstract, a theological concept. But the thing is, it actually has a real tangible impact on how we live, and here's why. What the doctrine of the Trinity means is that God has existed forever in friendship. He has never been alone. God always has, currently is, and always will be in loving relationships with himself for all eternity. He exists in community. And what that means then is if we are made in his image, we are designed to live in friendships with other people. We are designed to be in relationships with other people. It's a part of who we are. And what that means then is just like Adam, you are not good alone. You are not made for a personal, private relationship with God. Now what you're thinking is, well what about like my spousal relationships and my, fam- and my family relationships? Don't those cut it? And here's the thing, friendship is actually the model to modeling God's character, because friendship is different. Friendship is uniquely different than our other relationships. And I'll explain why. So C.S. Lewis wrote this famous book called The Four Loves, where he goes down and breaks down every human relationship and explains its kind of their implications. And when he gets to his chapter on friendships, he starts off by saying, friendship is different because there is no biological necessity to friendship. Because in marrying someone or raising a family, there's a certain biological drive, right, to having a spouse and to procreating a family. And that doesn't really exist in friendship. There is no necessity, right, to be in friendship. And so what that means then is to have friends is to live life with someone for no other reason than to model how God is in community with himself. 
There's no other reason for it than to live in relationship with other people. And here's where it gets crazier. In the same essay, C.S. Lewis also said that he was talking about how he had three close friends. It was C.S. Lewis, Charles, and Ronald. And they were unbelievably close, and for decades they were close friends. And as they got older, Charles eventually passes away. And after Charles passes away, C.S. Lewis thought that him and Ronald would then grow closer together because now they would bond over Charles passing and we get to talk more and get to know each other more. But what he found out was that after that, he actually knew less of Ronald because the part of Ronald that only Charles could bring out was now gone. The certain jokes, the personality traits, the things that only Charles would bring out of Ronald are no longer there. And so he said, C.S. Lewis said, to lose one friend is to lose a part of another. And then he reflects and says, how much more true of this, how much more true is this with God? Because what this passage shows, what the Bible teaches, is that God dwells in people. He dwells in his people. And that means then to cut someone out of your life or to not be in relationship with other people is to miss out on God, is to know less of him because you know less of his people. And that means then that Christian friendship is, a, is an unbelievably high calling. It's a Christian calling. And that means then if that's true, if friendship is modeling God's character and getting to know him more, then that means we've got to be like that here and that means we've got to be like stones. Stones in the same building, so unbelievably close that that is where unity looks like. Now let me give you, again, I said this, I want this to be tangible. Let me give two elements that I think articulate what this looks like. First, that means then you have to be, you, ha you have to spend real time with people. And this seems obvious, but the way we live, we don't reflect this because what we do is a lot of our relationships are in formal places, work, church, school. Like these formal gatherings where we're forced to come together and we're not spending our actual real lives with people. Because what friendship is about, what friendship means is we can't just come to these formal programs, these formal events and expect to have these deep friendships. And in church community, we tend to think that means if we gather with people once or twice a week, that that cuts it. But that's not real friendship. Real friendship can't stop there. We've got to live real life with people. Like where we eat, where we hang out, all of the places we go on our day-to-day -day basis, our friends have gotta be there. Because if we're going to accomplish our vision, which we have recently said is that we exist to lead all generations to love Jesus people, to help love Jesus better, then that means we've got to spend actual real time, it's gonna take time to do that with people. And that means then your Sunday school group is not enough by itself. Once a week gatherings are not enough. We have to spend real time with people out in our real lives and real places because the great equalizer is much bigger than formal gatherings. When is the last time you had someone over to your house just to check on how they're doing? Or when's the last time you had a bunch of church people over to your house for a non-church related function? To have real friendships is to spend real time with people in our common lives. But second, if that, along with that, you also have to have people who know you deeply. And that means the facade, the worry of what people think about us has got to be dropped. 
Our conversations have to go beyond surface level things. Like there's nothing wrong with talking about TV, sports, what's going on at the office, but our conversations can't stop there because that does not promote real friendships. No, they've gotta be deeper than that. Nor, and what else doesn't work is the fake Christian conversation where we come together and go, I'm really struggling with pride this week. Like, our conversations have to be real, authentic, genuine, but we are terrified to let people in on what's actually happening. Like, when's the last time you let someone in on all of your deep marital struggles? Or when's the last time you let somebody in on the anxiety you face every time you go to work or the anxiety you feel every night when your head hits the pillow and you can't go to sleep? When's the last time you shared that side of yourself with somebody? But that's scary, right? And I'll give you an example from my own life, not to say that I'm a completely open book, but I do have friends who I talk to frequently, and I have one in particular who I talk with basically every week. And yes, we talk about normal dumb things like memes, crypto, dating, all that. Like, we get into all of that. But beyond that, we go, it has to go deeper than that because our friendship is much stronger. And it means that I have to share things like, for example, a couple weeks ago, we were talking about how on one Saturday afternoon, from the hours of 4 to 8 p.m., I basically just sat in a pit of loneliness, not wanting to hang out with anybody, super stressed out and anxious, and super discontent in my singleness. And we don't like to share stuff like that. But that's real life. And everybody in this room is walking through things like that, and yet we do not want to share that kind of stuff with anybody. But the only way to have actual, intimate, deep friends is to do that. The great equalizer, the gospel leaves no room for shame of worrying about our persona or our brand. We're all undeserving of grace, yet we have received it freely, and our identity is not in what we do and who we are. When is the last time that you just sat and had a serious conversation with a friend, mourned with them, cried with them, shared deep things that you don't tell anybody else? Why haven't you? The gospel, the great equalizer, allows you to open up about your depression, your loneliness, your struggles. So go deep, be real. That's what it means to be stones. It's like stones cemented together, real time spent with people who know you deeply. That is unity. That is what unity actually looks like and it is powered by the gospel. But like we've kind of said, this is a bit lofty because, right, we're talking about modeling God's character, being like God in our friendships. And that's difficult, right? Like, how, look around the room, Grant. How am I supposed to do that here? Like, how can we in this room be brought as close as stones together? Well, this will be our third and last point. We'll talk about why we can be friends. And to see why, you have to look down again back at the passage, where you see in verse 13, it says that we have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And we have to stop there. Brought near by blood? How does blood bring people closer together? How does violence bring people close? Well, he keeps going. Here's what the Bible teaches. Look at verse 16. It says that Jesus came to reconcile both Jews and Gentiles through the cross. It was the cross. But why? Well, it says right after that, that it says he killed the hostility. Killed the hostility in himself. And what this means then is that he killed the hostility by being killed. And here's what this means. 
He's talking about the hostility that exists between both God and man and man and man. Because what the Bible says is we were all far off. We all went our own ways. We were all strangers of God by how we lived. We were all wayward and God, we're at odds with him. And rather than telling us to clean our act up, be better, stop being strangers, come to him, he actually comes down and takes on that hostility on our behalf. He comes for us. And so he looks at us while we were strangers, while we're at our worst, in the middle of us doing things that keep us up at night, the worst things we've ever done, he looks at us and regards us not as strangers, but as friends. And instead himself, Jesus comes to be a stranger, killed on the cross so that we might be called friend. That then is why we can all be friends. Jesus took the hostility, the enmity on himself. Because if he has died for us, if he looks at everyone in this room and regards us as a friend and dies for us at our worst, then that means then we can do the same. And let me, one side note real quick. What this means then is if you're in the room and you feel like, Grant, I want friendship, but I'm struggling. And I can't make friends right now. I don't have anybody. And I wanna be open, but I can't. And you're alone. Number one, I've been there. But here's what this principle means for you. It means that you have in Jesus Christ a friend who looks at you and calls you wonderful and amazing and lovely no matter what you've done or who you are and he promises to never leave. And he calls you friend regardless of how you act around him. And that, if that's true, that can get you through the times of loneliness. And if you need help with friendship, come find us and talk to us. Now what this means if the hostility between all of us is gone in the room, it's because God has looked at all of us and said, worth dying for. Everyone in the room God looked at and said, I will die for you. And that's how then we can look and view each other in the room. Now, again, that sounds kind of difficult because it's like, Grant, I mean, literally take a look around. You want me to look at all of these people? And how am I going to be friends with all of these people? What do I actually do? Here's why, here's, how, here's what it says to do. In verse 20, the, back at the passage, last thing, it says that Jesus Christ himself is the cornerstone. And if you don't know, the cornerstone was the biggest and heaviest stone laid in the building. It was laid first. And all the other stones were lined up on it. And all the walls were lined according to the specifications of the cornerstone. It dictated the rest of the building. And so what it's saying here is that Jesus cannot be just one stone in the building. He's gotta be the cornerstone. That means that in your life, he can't just be the thing you do on Sundays, the church you go to on Sundays. It can't, he can't be just about what you pray at meals. No, what he's saying is that Jesus and the gospel have to become the very core and center of your being. The gospel's gotta go deep. It's gotta go from being an idea, a theology, a doctrine to something that deeply shapes who you are. You have, that means then you have to keep reminding yourself over and over and over again that you were once far off and God looked at you and said, you are my friend. And you have to tell yourself that every day. Every day, letting that become the core and the center of who you are. Because that's why we say at PCBC, we're all about Jesus. Because at the end of the day, the gospel is not just an idea, not just a concept, but something that could become deeply personal and shape the way you see yourself and other people if you let it become the center of who you are. Let us pray.
Father, thank you for today and your word. The fact that you looked at someone like me and called me friend, gave your life for me and everyone else in this room, though we don't deserve it, let us take comfort in the friendship we have with you, knowing how much you love us, and let us be able to be like stones together. Because of the friendship you have with us, we can be friends with each other, be unified, not throw up dividing walls, and that you would do that this week. And for those who are lonely, who are upset and stressed right now, let them take comfort in you, knowing that you're with them and that you're not gonna leave. In your name I pray, amen.